Welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study. We're here to study the book of Matthew chapter 17. And we just prayed and we left off um, just after the transfiguration in Matthew 17, where Jesus shows three of his disciples, reveals his true glory. Uh, he appears as a man, but he is so much more. He's fully God and fully man. When they come down from the mountain, that's Peter, James, John, and Jesus, they uh, encounter uh, a crowd in verse 14, and a man approaches Jesus, and notice he kneels before him. That's a worshipful posture to take before the Lord. That's the first thing we do when we come to his presence in prayer, um, and that is a, a categorically a a theme in prayers that you see in the Bible, even in the Lord's Prayer, um, the, uh, the, the it begins with "Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, reverence, great glory be to your name." It starts with worship. So this man, he's got a demon possessed boy, and this is on the scale of demon possession, about a one hundred out of a one to a hundred. Uh, as a matter of fact, he says in verse uh, 15, Lord, have mercy on my son. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples. That's the other nine who didn't go up on the mountain, right? But they could not heal him. So we, we dove into that passage, but didn't really get through it. So we're going to pick it up in verse um, 17. Um, so I know that those of you that are here and braved the rain, which I'm proud of you, a lot of people didn't. Um, so I know that you're awake. Say amen. amen. Okay, great. And you people on Zoom, amen from Belize. How cool is that? Awesome. Amen from Zoom land. I like that one too. All right. Um, welcome everyone. Uh, so the first thing we want to review is the fact that nine disciples of jesus who in chapter 10 apostles in chapter 10 they were given the ability to heal sickness and cast out demons and he sends them out two by two then they come back and report to him it's a short you know one to four week kind of a little mini mission trip a hint of what they'll be doing after he dies and rises and goes to be with his father and they're able to do it but now the nine are left at the bottom of the mountain Three go up with him, Peter, James, and John, the inner circle of Jesus' followers, and Jesus himself on the mountain. They see the transfiguration. The nine are down below. The man knows, hey, you guys are Jesus' apostles, aren't you? Yes. Please, can you heal my son? Um, Jesus is frustrated with his apostles, the, the nine, to say the least. We'll see that in a second. From all the, this story appears in Mark uh, as well, um, we learn there that the boy um, has been this way since he was a little child, number one. Number two, he was also made deaf and dumb by the demon. Um, we learn that he's been cast into the fire and into the water, the demon, you know, trying to kill him. In this passage, he's going to foam at the mouth in a second. Uh, really a, a scary thing. The boy is has mental illness caused by the demon. We said last week, not all mental illness is caused by uh, mental illness. Some maybe, uh, some not. So 
uh, the father is obviously pleading and the nine apostles couldn't heal this boy. The lesson for you and me is that do not put your faith in any Christian. Might surprise you. Not your pastor, not me, not Billy Graham, not anybody. People will fail you from time to time. We're all fallen. We're not glorified yet. Put your faith in the one who can heal Jesus Christ. So he's frustrated with his apostles. Um, uh, let's see. So verse 17. By the way, uh, Mark tells us that as soon as he sees Jesus, I don't think it's here. Um, yeah. As soon as he sees Jesus, the demon throws the boy to the ground, writhing and screaming and foaming at the mouth. He really puts on a show, which would scare you and me and freak us out, not Jesus. What happens is Jesus immediately casts the demon out of the boy. But he says in verse 17, you unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? Keep in mind, he's just come from the mountaintop experience where he showed them who he really is. And now this, back to planet Earth. Bring the boy here to me. Verse 18, it's very glibly stated. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. What the disciples couldn't do, he could. What I'm about to tell you is I'm going to suggest. I'm not going to sell it that hard because I don't know if it's true. Because you got to ask the question, why couldn't the nine disciples together cast this demon out? We're going to get that question in a second. Jesus is going to say prayer and fasting. This kind is tougher. There are strata of leadership in demons, and this might have been a really high up demon or two or ten, who knows? But it's, it's mentioned as being only one demon. It's possible, this is what I'm going to throw out, that the nine were trying to do it in their own power, in the flesh. I, I, Matthew, I, Judas, cast you out, demon. And that's, they were told to do it in the name of their Lord, Jesus, who is the one with the real power. Their power is derived from him. It's possible also that they, the nine, were feeling a little indignant and insulted that the other three teacher's pets got to go up on the mountain and they had to stay down there and deal with the demon. So there might have been a little competition going on. Um, but regardless, um, when he heals the demon, uh, casts the demon out, Luke adds all, I said this last week, just at the end, all of them, all the people watching, there was a crowd, were astonished, listen, at the majesty of God. Peter, James, and John were just astonished at the, ma the majesty of God up on the mountain. But this is no less majesty than the shining glory because this is the compassion and the power to tell a demon, get out of him. And he goes away. Beautiful. Um, I didn't say it last week, so let me say, I, whenever there's a demon possession thing, I always do this short speech about, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit, by definition, lives inside of you. Therefore, it is impossible for you to be demon-possessed. That would mean the Holy Spirit has a roommate, a demon. It ain't going to happen, okay? Does that mean I'm immune from all effects of demons and the devil? No. In fact, they can 
tempt you, oppress you, but not possess you, take control of your body, impossible. Uh, there is no demon possession case in the New Testament where it's a Christian. Doesn't happen. Just wanted to say that. So the disciples tried and uh, they weren't able to cast him out. Let's go back to the text here. Um, verse 19, 19, yes. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? They want to know. And so he doesn't go into the deep reasons about anything. He just says, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Okay, so 20 and 21, actually. Uh, yeah, 20 only. We'll get to 21 in a second. So what's going on with this? Is this a carte blanche? Anything I want, I can have if I believe it enough. No because you can never build a doctrine on anything, in this case, faith or prayer, without looking through the rest of the Bible and taking everything God has to say. First John 5 says that we can ask anything of God in prayer, good so far, and if it is according to his will, we know that he hears us. It might not be according to his will, at this moment. It might be that it's next year he's going to grant the request. That's wait, right? It might be that the answer to the prayer is, no, I have something better for you. So he may answer your prayer, make you wait, or he answer the prayer uh, in, in, by saying, no, I have something else that is better for you. But they have little faith. That, to me, hints that their faith, faith was in themselves, not in their Lord, not in God. Um, so it's strange, though, because I'm expecting him to say, you need a ton of faith. And he doesn't. He says the opposite. He says a faith the size of a mustard seed. Why didn't he say grain of sand? About the same size, depending on where you go to the beach, right? There's some grains of sand that are smaller than a mustard seed. I think he uses, and so do a lot of the experts that I read, I believe he uses a seed because seeds, if you plant them, they grow. Earlier in this gospel, he says, faith the size of a mustard seed, but the church is going to be like that, it's gonna grow so big, it's gonna be a tree that birds can land and live in the branches. Do you remember that? So they have little faith, but faith, remember, Jeff here can have very little faith in God, in Christ. And this verse says, and because of that faith can pray for and do mighty things. But Dan or I might have tremendous faith that is misplaced. What do you mean? I have faith in myself. Dan has faith in me, or Dan has faith in himself. We got a ton of faith. It's not the amount of faith. It's the object and what in whom the faith is placed. I can have faith in Buddha or Muhammad or Allah or Jim Jones or whoever, right? Billy Graham. 
Faith is only as good as the object in whom it is placed. We have to know God. Also, we learn in the Bible that um, faith has to be according to his will and his timing, but also, listen to this verse, the effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much. What are you saying? I'm saying if I have faith in God and I'm living a disobedient life, I'm not a righteous man. It doesn't work out that way. The reason is, if he, if I'm getting drunk every night and I have, but I do have faith in Jesus and something great is done by me, I'm going to think, see, the drinking is okay with God and it's not. So mustard seed faith is little, but it's in the right person, the Lord Jesus, in God, in Christ alone. Not carte blanche to get whatever you want. That's the name it and claim it stuff. Okay, look at verse um, 21. Uh, let's see. Most of you are going to say, I don't have verse 21. Some of you have it as an asterisk at the bottom. Anybody not have it at all? In this Bible, it's not here at all. And if you look at the bottom, it says some manuscripts say, but this kind does not go out by prayer and fasting. You say, what's going on here? The oldest and best manuscripts of Matthew don't have verse 21. Some do, the later ones do. You say, okay, well then we can't talk about prayer and fasting in this context. However, that verse is exactly what Mark 9, 29 says in this context of this story of the guy with the demon-possessed son. Jesus heals him, and Jesus says there, this kind doesn't come out except by prayer and fasting. Therefore, somebody added it to Matthew. Is it unbiblical or untrue? No, it's biblical. It's true, but it's not supposed to be here. But because it's in Mark, it's in God's word, we can talk about it. What is it about prayer and fasting? Both of them indicate a absolute reliance on God. A person that thinks he can heal somebody on his own would never bother. Why do I need to pray? I've got the power. A person that prays knows I can't do this. Please help me, God. Do this through me not me doing it. Fasting is the withholding of something, food, food and water for a prescribed period of time, not to lose weight, but to say to God, I'm asking you, I'm so earnestly asking you, I don't even want to eat or drink. I just want to, whenever I feel hungry or thirsty, may that remind me of my utter dependence, not on food, not on water, but on you. So I think they went into this, the nine that couldn't heal him, a little cocky, a little conceited, and let me take a crack at it. All nine of them failed. Kind of embarrassing, right? Um, from that little story, uh, by the way, moving mountains, of course, he doesn't mean that literally. That has never happened in history or happened in the Bible. What does a mountain symbolize? It symbolizes something that looks just too big. This problem is too big for me. What problem do you and I have that is too big for God? None, right? So we give it to him, watch him move mountains. But faith, listen, is a living channel of trust between you and God. Faith is believing God according to his character and then leaving whatever you pray about at his feet.
in this way. I trust you with this, God. Job says, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. I've got this disease. If you want to take me, God, I, my faith won't go down, not even 1%. But I pray that you would heal me. I leave it in your hands. I trust your will better than mine. We already talked about obedience, and we talked about verse 21. Verse 22 and 23, you're going to say, redundant. He's already done this twice. Verse 22, when they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the son of man, that's his title for himself, favorite title, is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day, he will be raised to life. And the disciples rejoiced that he was willing to die for the sins of the world. You guys, you don't have that in your Bible? No, me either. And they were filled with grief. No wonder they love him. They want him to hang around. But this is the reason he comes to the earth to die. He has said it two other times in Matthew so far. But if you're really paying attention, there's new information here. Look at it again. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered. Do you see that? That's, he has not said that before. He's just said that he's going to go to Jerusalem where he will be um, arrested and killed, and on the third day he'll rise again. Here we learn he'll be delivered. Who's he talking about? Talking about Judas. One of the 12 that hears him say this may not even know that's going to be me at this point, but he's going to be betrayed, delivered. Someone's going to bring him, allow them to find him and make the connection. He'll be delivered into the, let's see, hands of men. It's not going to be demons or the devil that takes hold of him. It'll be people, the army, the, the soldiers from the Romans and the temple guard, both. Verse 23, he says it just so matter-of-factly, they will kill him, meaning he's saying they'll kill me. And on the third day, he'll be raised to life. Pretty much every time he says he's, this is going to happen, he reminds them on the third day, I'll be raised to life. They're grieved because they love him. They don't want to see him suffer. They don't want to see him die. But the truth is, if you love someone and they say, they call you up or they have lunch with you and say, you know, I've made a decision. I'm leaving this area. You'd be, oh, I'm going to miss you. I'm so sorry. Where are you going? But then if they said, I'm only going for three days, it would be, oh, and then you're coming back? Yes. Much better, right? Now, the truth is he rises from the dead and hangs around for several weeks and then ascends to heaven. And then physically he's gone for good, right? Not for good. The second coming he returns. They wanted him to stick around because they loved him. He, they know, has the power. What they couldn't do, he just says to the demon, get lost, and the demon's gone. But what they don't understand is, and he says it in the Gospel of John, it's to your benefit that I go away. And they say, no, no, you're wrong, is what they're thinking. Because if I don't go away, he says in the Gospel of John, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, won't come to you. I got to go away, present myself to the Father as the ultimate sacrifice for sin. Once God the Father receives me and seated at the right hand of the Father, then the Holy Spirit can enter all of you. Until then, 
The sacrifice isn't paid. You're still in your sins. It can't happen yet. So he wants them to know that's the reason he came uh, to the earth, but he reminds them again. You have to say, it's so little surprising that they're so shocked when it happens. When he gets arrested, they're all scattered. It's God's will. Um, Isaiah 53 says it was God's will to crush him. Why? Because he's paying for your sins and mine. It's got to be a penalty paid. He's going to take all that wrath that you and I deserve in our place. That's the reason he shows up to the earth. Uh, okay, so there's another reminder. Luke 24 says they didn't understand all this until after the resurrection. Then it all made sense to them. Uh, just thought I'd throw that in. If they understood, they would have said what I said in the pretend reading, right? That when they heard this news, they rejoiced because he was going to pay for their sins and they'd have eternal life. It's better. But they don't understand. Sometimes we don't understand when God does things in our lives and we look back, hindsight, a year, five years later and go, you know what? It was actually a good thing that happened. I met so-and-so or... I grew in faith. He humbled me. I don't know. It's different for every person. Okay, now let's talk about taxes, a subject everyone loves. But now you're not awake anymore, are you? Verse 24. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, that's a city, northern Israel, it's their headquarters. The collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, and ask, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? In Greek, it expects a negative answer. It's like saying, hey, your guy, your Messiah guy, he doesn't pay the tax, does he? So Peter says, yes, he does. Verse 25, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. Notice he knows about the conversation, even though he wasn't there. What do you think, Simon? He asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? From the princes and the princesses or from the other people? That's the question. Peter says, verse 26, from others, Peter answered. Then the children of the king, that's what he means, are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake, that's Sea of Galilee, throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you'll find a four drachma tax. The tax was only two. We'll talk about that in a second. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. This is an odd little story. Let's talk about it. Okay, what's the two drachma temple tax? This is not a civil tax. It's a religious tax on the Jews only. This is not Rome taxing them. This is a Jewish tax that is in the Bible. Uh, Exodus 30 verse 13 says, once a year, um, men, males only, 20 to 50 years old, so I'd be exempt because I'm just barely over 50. If you're over 50 or under 20 and you're male, you're exempt. But otherwise, 20 to 50, you pay two drachma tax a year, and it goes toward maintaining the temple, fixing that broken door, and whatever else needs to be done. 
remodeling. That's what it is. There was at that time no two drachma coin, okay? Um, it would be like saying you have to pay cash $2.50 tax. Well, we have a $5 bill, so Jim Foster and I could go, I've got five, I'll pay for both of us. You got the picture? It's a tax that men had to pay. Um, by the way, after 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, just as an added insult to the Jews, the Romans said, we're still going to collect that two drachma tax, even though there's no temple now, because they burned it to the ground. Remember, and took it apart stone by stone. We're going to use that money, though, for the temple of Jupiter, which was a Roman god in Rome, as an insult to the Jews. No, it should go for our temple, God's temple. It goes for pagan worship as a little dig to them. Okay, so Jesus is going to use this question to teach Peter and the apostles something. And it's this. He's going to change the metaphor and talk about civil, regular taxes. Okay, now we don't have a king in America. The president is not the king. Some of them think they are. They're not. But let's go in your mind to uh, you live in a country where there's a king and he's got a wife who's the queen and he's got, let's say, four boys who are princes and two princesses, two daughters. Got the picture? If that king, King Joseph, me, I impose a tax on the people, all of you peons, my kids would be exempt. Do you understand? So now using that metaphor, he's saying... What's the nature of this tax? Well, God commanded in the Old Testament two drachma tax once per year to pay for the maintenance and the service in the temple. Got the picture? So if God has a son, he would be exempt from the tax, just like a king's son or daughter would be. Got the picture? But in the New Testament... Not only is Jesus the son of God, but Christians are called sons of God. He is our brother, Jesus, in a sense, but also Lord. So what he's, by the way, priests and rabbis were also exempt. He happens to be a priest. He's going to give himself as a sacrifice. And he's also a rabbi, a teacher. Okay, so Jesus is exempt. He could protest and say, I'm not paying the tax. But to not cause an offense... He's going to say, we'll pay the tax. I don't want to make an unnecessary offense. Good lesson for you and I. Christianity is offensive to unbelievers enough. Don't be offensive. We should not be offensive when we're sharing the gospel, right? Because it's good news. That's what gospel means. Kings are exempt and so are their sons. He's the son of God. He's actually exempt. Peter is actually exempt because he believes in the Lord Jesus. He is grafted in as a son of God. So they're free or uh, unencumbered by that tax. Um, let's see. But after 70 AD, there's no temple. Where is the temple? Well, first you got to ask, what is a temple? A temple is a place where you go to worship, right? Just like a church. A temple is a place where you go to pray. A temple is a place of, for the Jews, sacrifice. Jesus is our temple. 
It's through him we pray in his name that we pray. He is our ultimate sacrifice once for all for the sins of the world, um, John says and Hebrews says. But he's not only the one that prays, he's also our high priest. We come to him when we worship. So Jesus is our temple. But 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Know ye not that your body, Christian woman or man, is the temple of the Holy Spirit, the temple of God. You carry around the temple. Christianity is the only major world religion without a geographic place. Wait, wouldn't it be Jerusalem? That's Israel. That's Judaism. Christianity has no central place. It's not the Vatican in Rome. Don't get me started on that. It is the Christian's body we carry around our temple. Therefore, you can worship God at the top of a mountain by yourself or with three friends, but we're about to find out that there's something about worshiping, praying together that is more powerful. The corporate prayer of people praying for the same thing. That's why when we pray in this Bible study, we bow our heads. Um, when you hear me pray, you are not to just listen. You're supposed to be praying right along. Yes, please heal uh, Lynette in San Jose. The prayer of many is powerful with God. Okay, so... Um, by the way, in Matthew 12, 6, he talks about the temple with the Pharisees, and he says, but behold, something greater than the temple is here. He means himself. He's going to die for the sins of the world. Okay, let's keep reading in the story. It gets weirder. So he knows about the discussion. Does your, your guy doesn't pay the tax, does he? Verse 25, yes, he does. But he comes in to ask Jesus, and Jesus beats him to the punch and says, He's the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? Who do they collect taxes from? From others or their, their own kids or from, from others? Then the children are exempt. Verse 27, but so that we may not cause offense. Here's where it gets weird. He's about to tell a professional fisherman how to fish. And he's not a fisherman. But earlier, Jesus did tell Simon where to cast his net and what happened. They caught such abundance of fish, they had to call for help. Do you remember? So he does know something about fishing. We'll get back to that in a second. Go out to the lake, throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, you'll find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. It doesn't say what happened, but I can tell you, Peter reluctantly I'll tell you why in a second, went to the Sea of Galilee. Kind of must have thought, this is weird. I'm supposed to put in a fishing line, right? Peter doesn't fish with a line. He's a professional fisherman. They fish with giant nets. Amateurs in that area fish with a line. No offense to Ken, who's a big fisherman. These guys catch 100, 500, 1,000 fish at once in huge nets. He's going there because Jesus told him, I don't even know if he has a line and baits a hook and has a fishing rod or something. I bet he's hoping his fisherman buddies from the competing companies don't see him. What are you doing? 
one fish at a time now? Have you scaling back your operation, Peter? But he does it in faith. God told him, listen, to do something a little hard to believe, a little weird. And he obeyed. And I'll tell you what happened. The first fish, the only fish he caught, he reeled it in. I don't know how big it was. I'm going to tell you the theory in a second about what kind of fish it was. And I'll tell you why people think that. And he opened its mouth and guess what was in there? A four drachma coin in a fish's mouth. What a lucky guess by Jesus. Wasn't lucky. Okay, so what's going on here? Did Jesus know that the fish, is that all it is, his foreknowledge? I don't think so. Adam and Eve, God gave Adam and Eve, listen, in Genesis, dominion over the earth. This is before they sinned. He gave them dominion over nature, including fish. So I believe Jesus told that fish, pick up a coin and bring it to the eastern shore, whatever the southern shore, wherever Peter's going to be, and wait for the hook and jump on. Does that sound weird? I don't think it's weird. Here's why. Because if you don't buy that story, you got to say, no, Joe, it was just chance that a fish, oh, come on. It's a big lake, okay? The dominion extends beyond fish even to animals. Adam and Eve lost it because of sin. Jesus has no sin. Therefore, I'm going to make the case that he has dominion over the fish and could tell one fish where to go. He could tell a thousand fish, go to the right side of the boat. I just told Peter to put his net there. Go. And the fish go, yes, sir. He also has dominion over animals. You say, oh, where are you getting that now, Mr. Make it up as you go? Do you remember when Jesus tells the apostles right before the triumphal entry, go to a certain place, there's going to be a donkey, the foal of a donkey, a baby donkey that's never been ridden. You know anything about donkeys? They don't let grown man get, out, get on if they've never been ridden. What do they do? There it is. He tells the guy, this is for the master. Okay. And he bring it to Jesus. He rides in on the donkey. Dominion over the animals. If that donkey could talk, I think he would have went, hello, master. Great to see you. Hop on. I'll give you a ride through Jerusalem. Beyond that, um, even the birds. You go, okay, where are you getting this one, Mr. Smarty Pants? In Matthew 26, 34, and then 74 and 75, he predicts for Peter, before the night's over, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Do you remember that? So is this a lucky guess? Because Peter does deny him three times, and then what? If you own roosters, I know that was a horrible impression. How did that happen? I think Jesus said, now. And the rooster went, okay, Jesus. Pretty amazing. Okay, I thought I'd throw that in. Um, it doesn't lessen the miracle anyway, but I'm going to tell you that it's likely that it is called um, mushed, M-U-S-H-T, also known as, it's a type of tilapia fish that's in the Sea of Galilee. Guess what? 
These fish are attracted to shiny objects. Now we have an expert fisherman here. A lot of fish are attracted to shiny objects. This fish picks them up. Somebody dropped a coin worth four drachma. Was that an accident or did God make that happen? I think he made that happen as well. I think when we get to heaven and we look back on our lives on this earth and we think it was just happenstance that I met Jeff here and we got to know each other or Tom or whoever, all of you, and God's going to go, oh no, I arranged that meeting, September 9th, 2000 and whatever it was. Were you doing all of that in my life? Yes. Nothing happens by chance. Nothing. Hebrews, Jews, listen, in the Hebrew language, have no word for coincidence. Did you know that? You know why? They think everything happens for a reason. Even the broken leg, yes, even your broken leg. Even the, that horrible traffic accident, whatever. God weaves a tapestry of your life and mine. And at the end, we look at it and we see the troubled times and the great times and this. And then I went, I was declining as I got older. And in heaven, I believe he turns the tapestry over and shows you there's so many interconnected yarns, pieces of yarn and thread that you never understood till now. He was in control. Therefore, you warriors, I'm including myself, what are you worried about? Right? There's somebody here tonight, I'm not going to point him out, who went through a near-death experience. He was so sick, we thought he was going to die. He's here now. If you ask him about it, he'll tell you his faith grew like a nuclear explosion in space because of that. Was it fun for him? No. But if that's what it took to get him where he is, praise God. Not going to mention his name. Don't worry. Okay. I think Peter never forgot this. Jesus, this is the only miracle. If you want to get technical, Jesus never does a miracle for himself. Ever. Satan tempts him. Do you remember? Hey, you're hungry. Long fast. You could turn these stones into bread. Go for it. Knock yourself out. Put some butter on him too. Jesus, what does he say? Answers with scripture. Man does not live by bread alone, but in every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He never does a miracle for himself. Oh, except here. But wait, it isn't just for him. It's for Peter. Peter's tax as well. It, it turns out Jesus does more miracles for Peter than any other apostle. Did you ever notice that? Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. Remember that? Jesus lets Peter walk on water. And I can imagine Peter never let the other 11 forget it. I have a lot of faith. So do I. Who walked on the water? What's his name? <laughs> Peter. Whose mother-in-law got him? Who did Jesus pay the tax for? John? James? Peter. All kinds of miracles for Peter. You guys remember when I lopped off Malchus's ear when Jesus got arrested? Who healed that so I wouldn't go to jail? Jesus. Who did he do it for? You, Peter. Maybe Peter needed a little extra faith. I don't know. 
No wonder 1 Peter 5, 7, Peter could write, casting, listen, when I was memorizing scripture as a young Christian, this was one of my favorites, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you individually. So tax time is coming. Get, go fishing in Bass Lake and see what you catch. No, no. Okay. Uh, okay. So that is a weird little story about paying your taxes. By the way, we should pay our taxes and not lie on our tax return. Yeah, but I don't approve of where the money is going. Neither do I. But they didn't approve where the money was going. The temple people were hypocrites. The Romans were hypocrites. They paid their taxes either way. Uh, when Jesus is asked about taxes to Rome, do you remember what he says? Show me a coin. Who, who is this on the coin? Caesar. Remember? And he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Roman coins, if that's his image on it, then it's his. Pay your taxes. But render to God the things that are God's. Remember that? We did that earlier in, in Matthew. Uh, we already talked about that. Yes, and that as well. Um, now let's go to, oh no, one more thing. Who paid the tax? Well, Peter, Jesus told him, use that to pay for me and you. Peter paid the tax. Did he really? Or did Jesus pay on behalf of Peter? You mean the tax? Yes. But I also mean salvation. It's a little hint. Jesus is going to pay, and he doesn't owe it. He just said, the sons are exempt. But I'm going to pay. Jesus is going to pay for you, Peter. Same thing on the cross. Who owes? Peter. Sin. James, John, me, Ken, everybody, right? Who pays? Jesus. Does he owe because he's a sinner? No, he pays because he doesn't owe. Out of love. Pretty cool. Okay, chapter 18 we're going to take our two-minute break now, and then we'll discuss chapter 18. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Those of you that are here, there's treats back there on the table, thanks to Charlotte and whoever else brought some. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. Those of you on Zoom, I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. We are back in... Matthew, but we're moving from 17 to chapter 18. Um, chapter 18, is, he knows he's going to the cross pretty soon. Chapter 18 begins uh, a, um, one of his discourses or speeches. This is all about, listen, how we Christians relate to each other. All in different facets of the diamond, I'll show you. Um, it's been said that it's hard to get along with other Christians sometimes. Jesus is great, but those other Christians. It's caused some people to stay home, and I'm just going to be me and Jesus. That's good enough for me. But we're commanded not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, which is a habit of some. I think it's Hebrews 10.25. We're supposed to be a family with a, with a common father in heaven, a common Lord, Jesus Christ, a common Holy Spirit inside of us, sisters and brothers, family. Here's a little poem. To live above with saints we love, 
will certainly be glory. To live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. <laughs> the problem with Christianity is not the doctrine or the Lord or God the Father or the Holy Spirit or the Bible. Those are all perfect. You know what the problem with Christianity is? Christians, me included, because we're imperfect this side of heaven. So that's what this chapter is about in a lot of ways. Division, dissension, competition, pettiness. We need Matthew 18. How to handle conflict is going to be covered. Pride. Uh, this is the fourth major speech that he gives. Number one was righteousness, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, 7. Second one, chapter 10, he gives a speech to the disciples about ministry, chapter 10. Chapter 13, he talks about the kingdom. Now there's this one, interpersonal relationships, how to handle conflict. The last one is Matthew 24, which is the Olivet Discourse, all about his second coming. You say, I can't wait for that one. No, me either, but we'll get there. Probably take 10 years to get there, but we'll do it. Uh, we already talked about that. We're going to talk about true greatness. Um, one last thing. Human beings, especially in this century, love lists. Top 10 lists. On television, they keep the Nielsen ratings that will tell you that week, two weeks ago, this is the most watched television shows. They have box office. They have the books of the best sellers in books, right? We have the Forbes 100 or 500, I can't remember, richest men. And we have lists for everything. Every sport, basketball, football, baseball, soccer, whatever, there's standings, right? They're in the first place in the West. The two best teams are about to play this Saturday. Me, I'm not really into football, so I don't really care. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, we love lists. Music has the top 40 for country, for pop, for even classical. We love lists. Verse 1, chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom? I don't want the top 10 Who's number one? Now, you know, if you've been in this Bible study for any length of time, my habit is when there's a question, let's answer it. Who is the greatest in the kingdom? Well, it's God. It's Jesus, right? Why are they asking this? Because there's competition. There's pride, right? Peter's probably been doing what I was doing earlier, joking. Who walked on the water? Who got his tax paid by Jesus? Did any of you? Or was it just me? I think there's competition. I think the three, Peter, James, and John, think they're hot stuff over the other nine. I think even the other nine are jockeying for position. They may think Jesus is going to start his rule now on planet Earth. In Acts chapter 1, after he's died and risen, he's about to ascend. They ask him, listen, will you now? Establish your kingdom on the earth? Because I want a cabinet post. Who's going to be vice president? Have you picked secretary of state, secretary of the Navy? You know, I, I expect to count. I'm one of the 12. Okay, we lost Judas, but I think there's unbelievable pride, pettiness, competition among the 12. 
and they're jockeying for position, I think that's why they asked the question. Um, in Mark 9 and Luke 9, the parallel passage, they say, Mark and Luke do, Matthew doesn't, that this is not a friendly discussion, it's an argument. You mean Jesus is, no, no, the 12 are arguing. I got news for you. This question happens over and over if you've read all four gospels. They even have this discussion argument in the upper room the night before Jesus is going to die on the cross. And Jesus' response is to take his robe off, gird himself like a slave, and wash their feet. What a humble Lord you serve. It's absolutely beautiful. So, um, yeah, John 13 is where that is. Who has the highest position? Who's number one? Right? Sports teams, we're number one. They want to know who's the greatest. They probably mean besides you. They probably know he's the greatest. Uh, humility is a weird thing because when you know you have it, you know, I, I'm a very humble person. When you know you have it and you say that, you've lost it. You're conceited about your humility. It's like, what? Okay, so let's see what he says. Who is the greatest? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They're really asking, who's the greatest spiritually? They want him to say, Peter, then John, then James, then Andrew, then Philip. That he, we want the top 10, top 12, right? Verse 2, he doesn't answer them, not right away. First, verse 2, he called a little child to him and placed the child among them. They must be going, what? What, what is he doing? In Greek, the word for little child is not a 12-year-old. In fact, in the parallel accounts, he takes the little child, I'm talking toddler or baby, 18 months, two years, two and a half years old. He takes the little child up into his arms. You don't do that with a 12-year-old, right? They'd be going, leave me alone. My voice is changing, <laughs> going through puberty, leave me alone. It's a little child. Now, you got to understand, we love children in the West, don't we, in America. Children in that society were property, just like women were property. They were to be seen and not heard. They were, they, uh, we're, we're going to talk, talk about who and what a child was. Okay, verse three. And he said, here's his answer. Truly, I tell you, verily, verily, I say unto you. Means, listen up, this is important. Unless you change, NIV has, turn is the word in Greek. Unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Who's he talking to? All 12. Why? Because they're arguing over who's the greatest. I think it's me. Let me tell you my reasons. I'm campaigning for number one. It's an astounding thing. Therefore, verse four, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest. So you got to ask, and then we'll get to verse five. You got to ask, well, what is it about kids? What are we supposed to imitate? The, the drooling? The No. Children 
are naturally, and I'm talking little, little, humble. How many conceited two-year-olds do you know? How many two-year-olds do you know that would say, do you know who you're talking to? You know what I've done in my life? What have you accomplished at two? I'm a self-made kid. Who, who could say that? Kids are totally dependent on mommy and daddy for everything. So are we, right? We just don't like to feel like or admit that. Kids believe what they're told, right? You tell a kid something, at that age, they believe it. Then they get older and they start doubting you, 14 years old, right? Um, kids are unconcerned about social status. They don't care. By the way, did you notice Jesus didn't go grab a kid? He called the little child, come here. And the child came. You say, so what? Let me tell you something. He's a grown man. He's 30-something, right? 32, 33. Most children, he doesn't have any children of his own, so it wasn't his son. Adult, you know, they hide behind mom or dad. He was the kind of person that a little kid would go, I'll go, I'll go sit in his lap. You can hold me, Jesus. What are you saying? I mean, this person that just glowed on the mountain, that just told the demon, get out. That kind of power is also compassionate, beautiful, tender, loving, kind, the kind of person that a child is attracted to in a good way. Um, okay, so he's talking about humility, isn't he? Uh, what else is there about children? Children, especially at that age, a year and a half, obey. Yes, I know, terrible twos. I, I, we went through that with ours, but children obey. Children respect authority. I know when they're 14, they don't, it changes. They are unconcerned with money, fame, power, college degrees, good looks, titles. They have no resume. They know they're dependent. They're defenseless in danger. That's why they hide behind their parents. We hide behind our Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness, right? They don't care about titles. Children are lovable. They're given everything, right? A two-year-old doesn't say, I earned this. A two-year-old recognizes everything I have, I've been given. That's what God is, Christ is saying to the 12. You better realize even your own lives, everything you have, you've been given. Okay, but he's really got a gift in art and he in building and him in military stuff and him in weightlifting and her in all those talents, all those gifts are all given. All of it. We owe him everything. So that's the point he makes to shut them up about who's the greatest. Does it work? No, because I told you. They argue the night before he's crucified, who's the greatest? Um, yeah, we talked about that. Charles Spurgeon on this passage wrote, he's calling us to make a right estimate of who we are, of ourselves. We tend to think about the things we've accomplished. You know, she won a gold medal or he was elected mayor and it's all given. It's all him. Humility is the trait. Tim Keller has a whole sermon series on uh, the upside down kingdom. 
You want to be the greatest? Be the humblest. Be like a child. Pretty amazing. In America, in business, it's you get ahead by showing I'm better than he is. I deserve the promotion, boss. And here's why. Not in Christianity. Just the opposite. Jesus says in Matthew 19, many who are first will be last. It looks like they're first. They'll be last. And many who are last will be first. In heaven, there will be some people who are truly honored. And I bet we've never heard of them. Nothing against Billy Graham or Charles Stanley or whoever, John MacArthur, whoever. I'm just saying, I bet some little old lady in Poughkeepsie is a prayer warrior who believes so strongly. You don't even know who she is. But man, what faith. That kind of thing. Okay. The default position for human beings is selfishness, pride. Uh, go for all the gusto you can. Only the Holy Spirit can change us, humble us. Um, whoever exalts himself, the Bible says, will be humbled. Don't go around tooting your own horn or he's liable to shove the horn down your mouth so you can't toot it anymore. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted, Matthew 23. Um, in Proverbs, he says, he, God, mocks proud mockers, but gives grace to the humble. Jesus is the ultimate example of this. He was God in heaven, clothed in light, and he became a little baby, and there was not even room for Joseph and Mary to deliver the baby anywhere. He becomes a human being, he lowers himself, and he's greatly exalted as a result. God can change us and make us humble. God can use you way more if you're humble than if you're so proud of who and what you are and what you've accomplished and all that. Um, here's an interesting thing. In the Psalms, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Night after night, they pour forth speech. You go, I, I don't hear anything. Just be quiet on a starry night. We can do it in the mountains here. We, I, I've told you this before. At our house, we have lawn in the backyard. With the, When the kids were little, when they were teenagers, my wife and I still do it now and we have, we're empty nesters. Some nights, August is the best month, we've learned. Turn off every light in the house, go outside and lay down and just look at the stars and don't say anything. You can't help but think about God, especially when you realize this is just one of billions of galaxies. And there's billions of stars, which are suns in our galaxy. And space, here's the mind blower. Don't say you understand it because you don't. Space goes on forever. Well, we know of billions of galaxies, but there's a bunch of galaxies we don't even know about. We don't have telescopes that powerful. That God who made all that, how much greater is he than you or me? I feel really small when I look at the stars. We can feel really big in our lives and... I feel really small there. I feel small at the ocean. I feel small at the Grand Canyon. I feel small standing in Yosemite Valley. You ever stand there and just go, wow, let alone space, a proper diagnosis or view of who and what we are. So he's making us humble so that he can use us. By the way, if you're a good fill in the blank, golfer 
tennis player, fisherman, um, baseball player, artist, what a musician. Hang out with a professional golfer and you'll feel small. God wants us to be humble. Take the lowly position. That's what he's saying. Um, so this is not something you can do on your own. It comes from reading the word, realizing how great God is, how small we are, how insignificant we are. And yet we're significant in that God died for you personally. Part of the whosoever. Okay. Unless you change, because we're not, the default position is selfishness. And become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. I've given you this analogy before. It's not in the Bible per se, but I think it's true. If you will imagine that there's a, a cave or a doorway that you have to enter to come to Jesus Christ, I don't think it's big with flashing lights and that they blow trumpets when you come through it. Yes, Joe is now a Christian. Thank you all very much. I think it's a door about this high, about three feet high. Well, that's too small. I'd have to get on my hands and knees and crawl through that thing. Right. Might even get dirty coming through. Now listen, once you come through, God says, get up, and he hugs you and loves you, and so does Jesus Christ. But it takes some humility to bow yourself down and come that way, because I don't and you don't deserve to be saved or deserve any grace from God, but he gives it. So his total love for us is unconditional and undeserved. The more we're around, back to the go, if you think you're a good golfer, go watch the pros play somewhere, hang out with a pro golfer. The more you're around a pro golfer, the more you realize I'm not really not that good. I'm, I beat my friends every time I play, but I'm no good. The more you read the word and see the awesome holiness, perfection, power of God, that's a good thing. If it makes you feel small, you ought to go, thank you. I need this, right? The more we are around God in prayer, in the scriptures, uh, the more we realize our humility, our smallness. So now we've just dealt with ourselves, but I said this chapter is all about the interpersonal relationships between believers and human beings are complex. Naturally, you get a crowd of people, you start to look at, well, who's the leader here? Who's the, all that stuff is human. God's the leader here, right? Jesus Christ is our leader. Okay. Um, yeah, we haven't gotten there yet. Okay. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, good. Those of you on Zoom, is anybody just, not yet. All right, but the night is young. Verse, unless you become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom. Whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, now here's application. Verse 5, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Okay, may I tell you, I think this verse and the verses that follow talking about making one of these little ones stumble, see that in verse six, um, have been misunderstood. 
I think people think he's talking about children. He's not. Talking about believers, all believers. I'll show you why in a second. Therefore, no, sorry, verse five. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. What do you mean one such child? You mean a child? No, he would have said a child. He said one such child like this. Like what? Verse four, whoever what? Takes the lowly position. He's talking about a Christian who's humbled himself. You with me? Look at verse three. Unless you change and become like children. By the way, the reason he wants us to change and become like children is because we are children, right? We're his kids. This is dad talking. Uh, Whoever takes the lowly position, you have to change. Um, you have to be like this kid. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Translation. He's not talking about children, although it's true for children. He's talking about Christians. He's saying you're a part of a kingdom. You're also a part of a family. So if you welcome another believer are kind to them, hospitable to them, open to them, loving to them. He says, that's the same as welcoming me. Wouldn't you love to give Jesus a hug? You will in heaven, but wouldn't you love to? Wouldn't you love to have him over for dinner? Wouldn't you love to give him a ride if he needed a ride? Listen, if you know a Christian that needs a ride or you could have over for dinner, it's, he takes that as, you're doing it for me. On the other hand, I'll show you, if you are cruel to someone who's a Christian or belittle someone who's a Christian who is a little child of God, he takes that personally as if you've been cruel to, wait for it, him. Proof, Saul <clears throat> is a Pharisee. He ends up becoming the apostle Paul, you all know that. On the road to Damascus, Acts chapter, I think it's nine or 10, don't quote me. He's going around persecuting Christians because he thinks Christianity is a cult. And he's having Christians killed. And on the road to Damascus, God knocks him down and blinds him. Actually, it's Jesus. And the voice from heaven says, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you? And the voice says, I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting. And I'm expecting, Paul gets it right away, but I'm expecting Paul to say, hey, I'm not persecuting you. It's your stupid followers. I just hate all those Christians. It's the same thing. He's persecuting Christians. And Jesus says, you're persecuting me. Analogy. Do you have children, grandchildren? If somebody picked on your little three-year-old, would you just go, whatever? Or would you take it personally? You'd take it personally. So would I, right? God takes it personally how we treat, he's talking to Christians, how we treat other Christians. Yes, but you don't go to my church. So-and-so is so annoying. You, we are called to love the brethren, the non-annoying and the annoying brethren. 
Some of you are annoying. You know who you are. And don't be looking at me like that. The point is, we are uh, all to be that kind of humble thing who doesn't look down on, upon any believer regardless. Even the ones who aren't humble, who aren't like little children, who lord it over others and flaunt themselves, we're still supposed to love them because that's still God's kid. He's not finished with them. And Jesus takes it personally. We haven't done a detour yet, so go to Matthew 25 with me. I want to show you both sides of this. Go to Matthew 25, just a few chapters to the right. Matthew 25. We're going to pick it up in verse 31. I'm going to try to be quick, but it's a long passage. You'll get the idea. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, second coming, and all the angels with him, <clears throat> excuse me, he will sit down on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. He'll separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep saved from the goats unsaved. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, the ones that are saved, the sheep, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance kingdom prepared for you. For, here's the proof. Watch this, verse 35. For I was hungry. This is Jesus talking. I was hungry, Russell, um, Charlotte, Jim. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me and you showed me hospitality. You welcomed me. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous, the believers, you are going to answer, Russell, Jim. What? Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or give you clothes? Or when did we see you sick or go in, or in prison and go to visit you? The king, Jesus, will reply, verse 40, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers, the annoying ones, you did it for me. Do you see that? That's the positive side of things. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. These are the unsaved people who said, nope, I don't want Jesus, Bible, God, leave me alone. I'm good enough on my own. I'll take my chances in heaven. Verse 42, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes. You didn't clothe me. I was sick. I was in prison. You didn't look after me. Then they'll say, unbelievers, wait, 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 what? Lord Jesus, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger needing clothes or sick or in prison and we didn't help you? When did that happen in my life? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do, this is the negative side, for one of the least of these, my children, my kids, you didn't do it for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, the righteous to eternal life. How you and I treat Christians is important. Yes, but they're annoying. Will you stop? How we treat Christians Picture the most annoying Christian you can think of, and don't be pointing at me. 
you have to treat that person with great love and respect and help them and feed them if they're hungry and clothe them if they're naked and et cetera, et cetera. On the other hand, do you understand how important you are to God that you're his kid and he takes it personally? If somebody mistreats you, he takes that personally the same way you do if somebody mistreats your kid. And people that are mean to you, that are unfair to you, that, are, that mug you or beat you up or steal from you or lie to you or kill you, God takes that really seriously. That's pretty amazing to me. I don't deserve that. Wow. But he says, you're my kid. You're not perfect, but you're my kid. So back to the text. We're running out of time. Uh, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. See that at the end of verse five? Now we're going to take it a little further now. Let's talk about sin. If anyone, verse six, causes one of these little ones, does he mean children? No. What little ones? The ones who have to be changed and be like a child. The ones who take, verse four, the lowly position. Got it? He means all Christians. Whoever causes one of these little ones, one of my kids, believers, Christians, those who believe in me to stumble, scandalon is the word. It means to trip somebody up. Like you, you're standing on the side of a track and there's a race going on and you put out your foot and make somebody trip and fall. You cause them to, listen, to sin. I can't cause anybody to sin. Listen, if you tempt someone, we'll get to how in a second. If you are by your own example, causing them to stumble. We'll come back to that. If that happens, what happens? If, so, if you cause, someone causes one of a Christian, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for the person who put his foot out and made them stumble, who caused them to sin, who tempted them, who put a block, a blockage in their faith, a trail, if you will. It'd be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. What's that? They had little millstones that a woman or a man could grind grain and other stuff. That's not what he's talking about. They had millstones that were huge, so big that you would attach a donkey to it and the donkey could turn it. And as he turned it, it would be grinding great quantities of corn or grain or whatever. He's saying, if you tempt or cause someone to sin, it would be better for you to die a death of drowning with that big stone hung around your neck and then you're thrown into the middle of the sea. We all know that would be horrible, right? Drowning, horrible way to die. The Jews were especially afraid of drowning, way more than the Romans. The Romans drowned some people as capital punishment. Jews never did. Jews considered the sea a very fearful place. Ships go down, everybody drowns. Wow, it's a scary place. He's saying we, by our example or outright temptation, come on, let's get drunk. Nobody will know. Or a woman tempts a man sexually, or a man tempts a woman sexually. Or you tell somebody about a pornography site, or just Try this pot with me. It's really good. Just this one time. Anything we do that tempts another believer 
or even not suggesting that you do it, but just by example. You look at my life and you go, well, he gets drunk a lot, that guy. Sometimes Tuesday nights, he seems like he might, well, never mind. Um, just by example, we can lead people astray. If the church doesn't deal with a believer who's living in sin, that's coming later in this chapter, it implies that behavior must be okay. He goes to that church, they don't say anything to him, and they know he's sleeping around, or he's on drugs, or he's drinking, he steals at work, he's always lying, whatever it may be. It's important, God says, don't cause somebody to be tripped up and make them doubt in their faith. It would be worse to drown a horrible death. Verse 7, let me look at verse 6 again before we move on. Verse 7, woe, and he's not telling a horse to stop. That's woe like um, great sorrow and great pity and uh, great judgment is coming on the person. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. So now this is a different example. Woe to the world. In the Bible, generally, when you hear the world, he means the unsaved world. Now the subject has changed. It's still tempting a believer to sin. Now he's going to talk about the world, the unsaved world. Have you noticed how much temptation there is in television, in movies, popular music, to sin? Your unsaved friends, whether you know it or not, don't shun them. You need to be with them to witness to them and bring them to Jesus as much as you can. But they're going to tempt you. They're going to approve of behaviors. You and I go, well, that, to me, that's a big sin. I don't want to do that. So what he's saying here is um, there's great judgment and you should expect it. Do you see that in the middle of verse 7? Woe to the world, the unsaved world, because of the things that cause people to stumble all those temptations, pagan temples in that era, but there was still sexual temptation and drinking and drugs and all kinds of things they could get into. In business, there's an easier way. And it's not honest. It's dishonest. It's illegal. And you can make more money if you'll just bend the rules a little. Such things must come, meaning we should expect it from the outside world. Therefore, be cautious out there, but woe to the person, end of verse 7, through whom they come. Are you talking about unbelievers? Yes. The person that tempted you to have sex outside of your marriage contract or steal or lie or cheat or get drunk or whatever, that person will answer for that because that you're God's kid. He doesn't like that. Okay. I'm going to introduce the following verses, but we're going to have to talk about it next week because it's weird, okay? He's already said this once in a different context in Matthew, but here, verse 8, if your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It would be better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire, hell. Verse 9, if your eye causes you to stumble, to sin, lust, greed, gouge it out and throw it away. 
It'd be better for you to enter hell with one, uh, enter life, meaning eternal life, with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Do you take this literally? Don't. It's not what he means. Don't worry. We don't have any knives here. We're not going to gouge anybody's eyes out. Let me just tell you, if we lived by this literally, we would be a maimed church for sure. Okay? There'd be... Give me five. Oh, sorry, I forgot you don't have any hands or arms or legs or feet. Right. No, even elbows, right? The point is, if your eye causes you to sin and you take this literally and you guide your, gouge your, it's your right eye, uh, your eye out, guess what? You can still sin with the other eye. And if you gouge both eyes out, you can still sin in your mind and your imagination and your desires. Right? So he doesn't mean this literally. Oh no, it's worse. What does he mean then, smarty pants? He means deal radically with sin because it's way more dangerous than you think. We're going to leave it there. Don't anybody gouge out any part of your body. It's not what he's talking about. You cut your hands off, you can still sin other ways, right? But he does mean sin is way worse than you think. We'll talk about it more next week. Hopefully you'll all be coming here without any, yeah, whole. Thank you. Um, let's pray and then we will uh, we'll get out of here. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Lord, we've seen your glory and the glory of your son in that transfiguration. And then we've seen the power that cast out demons and that the plan was always for you to live a perfect life that we couldn't live and die the horrible death we deserve in absolute love. Thank you that you provide for us, God. May we see this week how absolutely dependent we are on you for every breath, every heartbeat, every step, every glimpse of our eyes, every brain cell that's left after all these years, for all of it, we're absolutely reliant on you. Certainly for eternal life, we have no worth on our own. It's your perfect life, Jesus, that you lived. Help us to be aware that how we treat other Christians, and that will be all of what we talk about next week, is so important to you. They're your kids, even the annoying ones, even the cocky ones, even the ones that aren't that humble or act like children. Help us to love other Christians and in so doing, love you and giving a cold cup of water to another believer is blessed in your sight because we're doing it for your glory. Bless these truths, God. May we see ourselves and you more fully and feel small and yet feel totally loved by the God of the universe. Bless these truths to our minds and hearts. May they change the way we live. We pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know who's here that's really important. Thanks for being here on Zoom. We'll see you next time. God bless.